So as some of you might know, if you've been listening, we are going to start answering your questions in an Ask RJ segment at the end of No Limits. So tell me, what are you worried about? What's going on in your world? What's problematic for you at work? If you want to have your questions answered, you have to email me at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. Give me a little detail and then we will set the whole thing up so you can call in and have the conversation right here on No Limits so that all of your friends can hear you and maybe your boss too. Well, hopefully not your boss, but your friends. Or maybe you are the boss, which is even better. There is a moment, I think, in everybody's career which you realize that other people don't necessarily know the answer. And that moment when you realize that your insecurities are no greater than others and that you may know as much, if not more, than the person you're either working with or working for or working among, you change. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's show, Sheila Nevins. She's the president of HBO Documentaries, and she has transformed the industry. She's got the hardware to prove it, too. 32 primetime Emmys, 34 news and documentary Emmys, and 42 Peabody Awards. Plus, under her leadership, HBO Documentaries have won 26 Academy Awards. So why now, after years of telling everyone else's story, is she finally ready to tell her own? You're about to find out. Sheila Nevins, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. I'm thrilled to have you here, the president of HBO Documentary Films. 32 Primetime Emmy Awards, that is the most out of anyone. 26 Academy Awards related to the documentaries. Yes. Under your purview. And of course, you're a best-selling author now. Your new book, You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. You got it. We both got a copy here with us, and that's the audio copy that you've got, the yes, CDs. Yes, yes, this is the audio. Which I've, I've had a chance to listen to some you of it. You did? You did your homework? I, well, yeah, I try. Very few try. people do their homework. I think this is, and it'll be, I'm curious to know this, it, between the men and the women that you <gasps> have done interviews with. Men don't do their homework. You know one person who shall be nameless? Um, look, there are good men somewhere, but men... <laughs> In uh, one man, um, actually, it was a magazine, and I, I said to him somewhere around two or three minutes of in this interview, "Did you read the book?" And he said, "I haven't had time." And I said, "I'll tell you what we'll do. You have a deadline. Why don't you look, you know, look at it, read some of the stories, listen to some of the, you know, the, some of the sound, and then I'll give you my cell number, and we'll do this again." And he never called. Wow. Well, I don't know that I would call after that conversation either. I would think, okay, I've really screwed up. But here. you this would have. But you would have read the well, book, I so would you would have. never have that conversation I, in the first place. That conversation would be probably my worst nightmare because I would never but, want to show up and have that happen. But you, but it would, you would never have the conversation. You yeah. clearly did your homework. Well, I. I I enjoyed the book a lot. It is a page turner. It's. The, I like how the chapters are so short and sweet, and you get like a different sense of you through each of them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorites was the, the the story about your son's hamster. Yes. Because Teddy, and, Teddy the hamster. Teddy the hamster. Yeah. And one of the things that it reminded me of, and one of the reasons why I like this book throughout, is that 
they're your stories, but they're kind of like our stories. You know, you kind of get these images from your own past. Do you have a hamster? I did not have a hamster. What we had was the class bird. So, oh, this, we, yeah, the class I in, in, I was probably about. Did he fly seven. loose or was he in a cage? He was in a cage. My mom claimed that he hissed at her every time she even came near the cage. And of course, my mom is the one who had to do all of this. Is he heavy still lifting. alive? Because birds. Oh, no. No, he, he died. He, he's long gone. I'm mm-hmm. certain of Did it. Did you kill my him? My sister. No, no. My sister named the bird Tweety. So, kind of like Teddy. Um, yeah. And uh, anyway, my how mom, long did he live? What kind of bird was he? Uh, he was a parakeet and he was with us for three months and then he went back to the school. So yeah. that that's the end game there. We right. we grew attached to it. My mom was on the opposite side. She was constantly complaining about it. Well, not pa- constantly. Actually, not to us complaining about it. But later in life, she told mm-hmm. us that he was just always hissing at her and he was the meanest bird in the world. Really? Yeah. Well, Teddy was vicious. <laughs> it sounded Teddy, like it, right? Teddy was vicious. Teddy knew me and hated me. I, I, he hated me from the day my son bought him. I like how you called him an Upper East Side hamster. He was as though an that Upper makes East Side hamster. Because he didn't have a cage. He had to live in a habitat. And it, it had to be a duplex habitat. So he had, his bed was below. Then there were these kind of tunnels. And they went to the top layer where he had a little Ferris wheel that he spinned on. He had more space considering his size than my family did. He was definitely an upper <laughs> And probably more space than most people in uh, living Possibly. in New York City, doing yeah. their first job in their studio apartments. Teddy was vicious. You, you also talk about your childhood growing up. Mm-hmm. Your mother was quite ill throughout yes. your childhood. Um, you struggled with sleep and still do. Oh, I don't. I, sleep, don't you think sleep is a waste of time? Well... I don't know. Ariana Huffington would argue with me. Oh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I don't sleep nearly enough. It right. sounds like you don't sleep nearly enough. No. Nearly I don't enough for be, what? Well, I wish I was more awake to enjoy moments at times. I think that, for me, is one of the... When, but if you jolt yourself, you wake up. Right. As, children, as you do, do with kids. Not yet. Okay. Our so goal is yes. Soon you will learn to not sleep. Yes. Soon you will be taught that sleep may be one of the errors of... Man, I know there are all these books about if you right. sleep, this happens, and if you sleep, you you know better sex. If you sleep, you're thinner. If you sleep, you know you floss better, whatever it is. But the thing is, it is really a, a giveaway of time, don't you think? Well, absolutely. And if you have a lot of big ambitions, then you feel like you just need to keep at it. Is that how you've always felt, even when you were a kid? I think when I was a kid, sleep was scary to me. Because mm. I I thought it was it meant death, you know that that lie me now I lay me down to sleep yes. all that kind of stuff. I, if I should die before I wake, I don't like that. I, maybe that well, did haunted me. Did you say me. that as a child? No, but I knew the poem. Right. I don't know whether I knew it from Mother Goose or some Reverend. I have no idea, but I knew that it was possible that you might not wake up again. So why would you go to sleep unless you really had to? And then the question is: Does everybody? Look, I'm not a scientist, but I'm not sure that everybody needs the same amount of sleep mm-hmm. to feel refreshed. That is true. You that, think that's, it's true? That you is, know that well, for I, a fact? I, I've seen the science behind that. I, oh, really? Ariana has been on, on the podcast, and we've talked yeah. about this, that not everybody— She and I should sort of duel this one out. I think you should. We should I'd like really to see that at the 92nd Street She could Street sit y. right here. Yes. No, she could sit in this oh, chair. She can come on the we podcast do again, here. Sheila. We could talk <laughs> about sleep, and we could have a— a professional sleep expert who's like a doctor of sorts. I like that. Who really knows. How much do you get? 
Last night, maybe five, four and a half to five. I don't look anymore. See, part of it is the looking. Like, people know how much they sleep. They say, mm-hmm. oh, I went to bed at two. I, I, people tell me this all through my career. I only slept three hours last night. Who cares? Right. Just do your job. Yeah. I slept. You want a cookie? I need eight hours sleep. Oh, great. So sleep eight hours. I need four or five hours sleep. Mm-hmm. So don't pick on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, let me sleep my four. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm certainly living long, long years. So let me not sleep. Look how much more time. We once did an interview with Castro many, many years ago in Cuba. And... um Somebody said something about, I, I think it was Oliver Stone's interview, and he said, you know, uh, in Spanish, why, why do you have this beard? Why are you so covered with hair? And he said, because I don't want to waste 45 minutes a day shaving it off. <laughs> well, I think, not that I feel, you know, one with Fidel, but I think... Where's your mustache? <laughs> We'll I'm go kidding. into that on another I'm show. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I'm totally, totally kidding. Um one of the one of the chapters that did really stand out to me on a sort of deep personal level as a young woman who has has been in the world of business and now is in the world of journalism is the Cosmo to Miss chapter. Yes. And how you start out um, as in early on in your career, I think it's something like you, you, you favor the seductive over your IQ and the education. Yes, because the IQ and the education didn't mean much. Is that was that your interpretation? How much of that do you oh, think was your interpretation versus what was what was happening around you? I don't think it was my interpretation. I think it was what was happening around me. I wasn't interpreting anything but the need to succeed, and it seemed as if being flirtatious and at the time being pretty, and um, you know, kind of wiggling around the workplace, it got me what I wanted. It just mm-hmm. did. It's horrifying to say that, but it was true. Um, I, I, I was um, basically typing stuff, and then um, I knew that there was a, a project that was going to happen in Maryland on the work corps, and they were looking for a PA, and I, I, that was not my job, and I wanted that job. And so I went to the boss, and I said, um, I, I hope he's dead. You think he's dead? He must be dead by now. And I said, um, blah, 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 blah. I think I could do that PA thing. I think I could stay overnight in Maryland and I could really, you know, work as a production assistant. Well, you know, it was a, a I paid a flirtatious price for that mm. job. But I got the job. Mm-hmm. And then that job led to another job and that job led to another job. And um, you're talking about the 60s, darling. You're not talking about 2017 where there's human resources and there's, you know, claims and you can write a book about it. Mm-hmm. There you had to look good and do it. I don't know many women in my age group that have been successful without it. Really? Um, well, most of them are dead in my age group. But the ones that, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't really know. I never really had the discussion. You know, people don't talk about it. I somehow talked about it because when I realized it wasn't correct Mm -hmm. to be so available, Mm -hmm. I realized at the same time that maybe the world would change. And I learned that from Gloria Steinem, and I learned that from the women's movement. But I wasn't taught that. Nobody gave me the rules for the workplace. I didn't know. I thought you sort of, you know, sachet. Mm. I did a little RuPauul-ing. I have to say... 
in all honesty, it's sort of it. I recognize that we're in a very different time in 2017. Totally different time. But it, it does. It did break my heart to read that because yes. I, I look up to you and the work that you've done. Right. And but it didn't affect the work that I did or what you're explain, looking up to me. Yeah. Did it? No, it, no, it didn't affect me looking up to right. you and the work that you've done. But right. I, I just I hate that that has to be a part of it. But it was, you want me not to tell the truth? No, it's not that I want you to not say it. I, I'm sorry glad. that I had to experience this? Of course. Well, so am I. But I, you know, I jumped over it, didn't I? Absolutely. It's like Potsy or a hopscotch. How did you, what was the, the moment, the turning point moment that made you jump over oh, it? Oh, it's a good question. There is a moment, I think, in everybody's career, man, woman, whatever, maybe even parakeet, I don't know. <laughs> but there's a moment at which you realize that other people don't necessarily know the answer. And that moment when you realize that your insecurities are no, uh, no greater than others and that you may know as much if not more than the person you're either working with or working for or working among, you, you change. And I don't know when that moment happens. It's hard to know. It's like falling in love with yourself in some strange way mm. or falling in love with your ideas and saying, hey, you know what? He said it, but I thought that too, and I think that plus. So why don't I just say what I think? Mm -hmm. Why don't I just move myself forward with my brain, with what I'm thinking? Um, and I don't know when that happens, but when that happens, you button that loose button, at least in my time, mm -hmm. you button the button that shows your cleavage up. You start wearing turtlenecks, I guess. <laughs> I I would actually say that I think that, that that moment happens whether or not the, the button happens or not. And, and but when it's it's an interesting point though, I think about all of careers and, and the early stages of a career where you don't know what you don't know. And Or you, you think you don't know. Sure. Because you have no reason to think you know. Yes. But then there's a point at which you think, hey, I know as much as her. I know as much as him. What if we did it this way? What if we do it right. that way? That whole lean forward idea is a very very careful one. Um, you know, because if you lean forward too soon, you topple totally yes. over and you can bang your head. Yes. If you lean back, which I must say I did a little bit mm -hmm. um, or a lot, uh, that was the only rule that I know. But I think the rule today is really, although the lean forward is kind of a la mode, I think the thing is sta start straight up and then lean forward when the time is right. And just because you're a woman doesn't mean you know the answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love the women's movement, mm -hmm. but there are incompetent women too. That doesn't mean that everybody can lean forward because they happen to have a, can I say vagina? Oh, sure. Okay. We don't bleep that out. But um, any you other swear that. words? Not well, other, but I'm any from swear HBO, words. We like yeah, swear I know. all the time. It's really, it's, I understand. You can't say mm or mm yeah, here. We have to How adhere do you express to all these, yourself? It's very difficult. What's the worst you. word you can say in the whole, uh, you know, on the air? I think shut up. Could you say uh, No, you definitely can't so say that. So you can't say anything. At this well, how point, do you express yourself without those words? It must be very hard. It is much more difficult. I mean, every four-letter word is bleeped out? Yes. <gasps> yes. Oh, my God. Why am I here? I know. Well, I, we wanted you because we were looking forward to the music that would be created by oh, the okay. segment, the okay. beep, 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 beep. <laughs> um, mentors. Yes. So you have this chapter in your book called Mentor Not, and there's this line that I wrote down that says, my finest mentor was revenge. Yes. Revenge. Talk about that. Why, why revenge? I th 
think it's a good word. I mean, it doesn't mean beheading. <laughs> I mean, I, I, revenge means that you're proving you can do it. A revenge means that something motivated you to prove that you can do it. And in your case, it's the ex-boyfriend's mom. Yes, it was the ex-boyfriend's mom. I mean, was it, was it you know, I mean, she said... I was madly in love with this guy at Yale Graduate School, and I, um, it was great. It was like daydream time. It was perfect. Every song that was romantic was meant for us. Mm. You know, there was, there were, it was so hard to say goodbye for a night or a weekend or whatever. You know, it was just, it was perfect, perfect, perfect. And then he took me to meet his mother. And um, I was in my 20s, and, you know, it was the first love of my life, really other than maybe school and work and stuff like that. But I mean heart love. And um, I, we, I went to his house. It was very fancy. And there were all sorts of famous people's paintings of the family on the wall. And I didn't really belong. I knew that. I mean, my father had been a postman, and my mother was disabled, and we didn't have a lot of money. And um, I didn't belong. I knew I didn't belong, but I thought I belonged with him. And we were doing something with dishes, drying the dishes or putting them away. I can't remember exactly. I think they came out of a washer and I don't know, were there dishwashers in the 60s? I don't know. Came out of something and we were like drying. I remember holding a towel and she said to me, Sheila, darling, aren't there any interesting Jewish men in the law school? And, um, wow. You know, I had never, I was from New York. I'd gone to performing arts in Barnard and I mean, there were Jewish people and gay people and dark people and white people and Asian people. I mean, there were all kinds of people. And I'd never thought of it. I'd heard of it. I certainly had heard of it. But I'd never really felt anti-Semitism because we were sort of assimilated. Mm-hmm. My mom was a communist. You know, it was, we didn't have, you know, we didn't wear Jewish stars or anything. But somehow she'd pegged me. And um, I remember calling my friend Roberta that night. And she said, that's called anti-Semitism, Sheila. You'll be lucky if you ever hear from him again. And I, I didn't hear from him again. That's heartbreaking. I didn't. But but I was telling Taylor, your, your great assistant, as I was um, chatting in there, you know, forever waiting. Um, <laughs> I don't mean forever waiting for you. I mean waiting. <laughs> waiting to do something is always a forever wait, isn't it? Sure. It always feels like, when is it going to be? Yeah, let's do this. Let's get that injection. Hurry up and wait. Let's get that injection over with. Let's get it over with. Um, The uh, lawyer for Macmillan Books said to me, you know, it would be a good idea if you called this person, not because there's a legal issue here, but there's sort of a moral issue. You know, he might want to write an article saying, you know, people will know who I am. It's 50 years later. Why would this woman write this? You know, I, I have 17 Jewish grandchildren now, whatever. And so I thought, all right, you know, I'll call him and read it to him. Now, on the audio, where I have some very famous people reading the audio, Tova Felcher read that story. And she read it like Lady Macbeth, you know. Mm-hmm. Your mother, she died. <laughs> and I said, you know, Tova, let's calm it down a little bit. She didn't know anti-Semitism, you know. And she was right. I mean, right to be angry. But it was my little girl story. I was 23 at the time. So... um when I read it to him, I, f- I knew where he worked. I called him. And, you know, I, you know we, one group of people, we all go to school together. We know each other. But I had long, my heart had healed, sort of. Mm-hmm. I mean, my heart was together. 
and I had a life, and I was busy, and I had a kid, and I had a lot of stuff. But I hadn't spoken to him in a long, long time. And so I said, look, I hope you don't mind. I wrote this story about what happened actually 50 years ago. Is it okay if I read it to you? I just want to make sure it's okay. And uh, he said, yeah, read, uh, read it. So I read it, but I read it like Little Mary Sunshine, you know. <laughs> Your mother said to me as I was drying the dishes, you know, whatever. And But I couldn't take away from the heat of the ending, which was, aren't there any Jewish, interesting Jewish mm-hmm. men in the law school? I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't. And the Sheila, are you Jewish? You know, that, that, that whole idea of being separated from any kind of assimilation in this country that's supposed to be called a melting pot, but Mm -hmm. it's not. And suddenly I read it, and I got very emotional while I was reading it because I felt guilty and angry. It brought back the whole experience, but it also brought back the good times. So I was really— What was the guilt about? Well, why was I putting this guy through this torture? I mean, you know, after all, we all make mistakes when we're young. On the other hand, there was a kind of— Revenge, retribution, like, ha-ha, I wrote it finally. Mm-hmm. I wrote the story that hurt so much. And um, so I read it. And there was a long pause at the end, and I thought he was going to say, please don't put that in the book, because it was still a galley. You know, really, it would be really nice, Sheila, if you just forgot that. I mean, after all, you know, a lot of things happened so many years ago. And he didn't say that. It was a pause, and I said, are you there? And um, he said, it's true. And I was a coward. And I said, thank you. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, I hope everything's well, the family's well. And I hung up and I just burst into tears because I felt I remembered him and I remembered the good things. And I thought at least there was some value in this person and that I hadn't wasted a year of my 20s being madly in love, that there was some value he just was under the thumb of what was then virulent anti-Semitism. It was mm-hmm. in the 60s, and it was, it's still virulent today. And I had to um, move forward. So I did a little, and then I just went on with my life. But it was interesting that I hadn't mistaken the event in any way. Because, you know, when someone retells a story, mm-hmm. it may be how you remember it as right. opposed to, you know, we just did something on the Holocaust, and um, this wonderful doctor said, my mother was shot in front of me. And then he paused for a second, 95 years old. And he said, I think my mother was shot. Not he wasn't senile or anything, but it was just that when you retell and retell and retell, sometimes you, I guess, almost naturally you distort. But I had tried very hard in this book to tell it like it is and that it would be accurate. And so I really had to, maybe because I'd, had so much theater training, you know, I had to really use method acting to go back to those experiences and create the smells and the sounds and the place so that I could tell the story as accurately as I thought I possibly could. And so I felt that I had been accurate to the story, but who knows, 50 years later, how accurate anything is. Um, So when he said that, on the one hand, I was relieved that I was telling the truth and that I could publish it. On the other hand... um, I was sorry. Mm-hmm. I was sorry that I had spent a year of my life not understanding this. And I was proud that I had not wasted my time with a real fool, that somehow this person, even though it took a long time to reckon that he had come to terms with his, all well, the biases of his family and what 
probably were dictated to him and that he followed. So that's the story. That was a very dramatic retelling well, it's, of this thing. I liked it. There's it was 46 stories in this book. Some of them are ticklish. You know, I didn't really mean to get so emotional. Were but, you laughing uh, while you were writing the ticklish moments? Did you were, were you as you were going through the process of creating the book and building it out? Did you were say you, the name of this book? Yes, absolutely. We said at the beginning, you oh. don't look your age. Oh, right, you and did. Other okay. fairy tales because you know a essentially I'm, I'm here to Sheila prostitute. My, can you say prostitute? <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Okay, I'm here prostituting my book. Bestseller by Sheila Nevins. Okay. It's called "You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales," in stores now and on Amazon. <laughs> and on iTunes. And on iTunes because of the, the fact that you can listen to it as well. Yes, you can. Meryl Streep, if yes. you want to hear her tell a story. Kathy Bates. Um, let's see. Katie Couric. Katie Couric. Uh, Gloria Steinem. Gloria Vanderbilt. Alan Alda. RuPaul. I was able Sachet. to assign. Sachet, yeah. I was able to assign the stories sometimes, and sometimes people selected stories. Meryl Streep, Streep picked the one about my mother's Raynaud's disease, and she simply sent a note, and it said, thanks for writing this book. I want to read this story. Where, when, XOXO Meryl. And I just shrieked out loud. Some people um, didn't accept the story that I assigned them, Diane von Furstenberg. Yeah, Diane. Diane von Furstenberg said to me, I gave her what I thought was an innocuous one about Santa Claus. She said, I don't believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> and Alan Alda wanted to read the one about Mary 1 and Mary 2. Mary 1 was really connected, got all the jobs, went from being an intern to getting a real job job. Mary 2 wound up working in the golf shop where Mary 1 was playing. And Alan said, I want to read you know, that story. And I thought that's so odd because Alan's had so many breaks, really. But he's such an empathetic guy mm. that um, even coming from a theatrical family and being in in theater and television and you know all the things that he does so well, he had this great empathy for those who don't have the right connections. So it's very interesting who picked what stories. Uh, Kathy Bates, we had a long talk about T.J. Maxx. Uh, we had a long talk about being able to afford expensive clothes, but not being able to buy them because you once didn't have them. Right. Um, uh, like everybody thinks this scarf is Alexander McQueen because it has skeletons on it, right? Right. But it's not. It's TJ Maxx. Did you do that on purpose? No. Did you I want just, it to look like it was McQueen? Oh, that's a very profound. Are you a psychiatrist? <laughs> no. That's a very profound question. <laughs> I just enjoy question. the questions. Um, I just, I, I like. Did I, I think it looked like Alexander McQueen? Um, yeah, I thought, yeah, good. Seven ninety nine versus seven thousand dollars. So when you go I'll to TJ Maxx, I love go, it. Do you go to the sale rack or do you go to the the, the like high Everything. end designer I discounted? TJ Maxx is like the Met for me. I love TJ. Maxx. I go up and down every aisle because I know I can't do any damage, and <laughs> I and I buy things I don't need, and mostly I give them away. Well, what are the things you buy that you don't need? Are okay, you like I get four bags, or scarves, or no, bags? no, no? Okay. I don't ever buy clothes there. You know, I I don't really change clothes. I wash them, but I basically dress the same all yes. the time. Whether I'm going out or not, I change the earrings, but I don't really change the clothes. I change the shoes. When did that begin? About five or six years ago when I thought, this is ridiculous. You wake up in the morning and say, what am I going to wear? Why waste your time? It's like sleep. Why waste your time? Why not? You know, my kid went to school. It's they wore Steve a uniform. Jobs. It mm -hmm. is? Well, Steve Jobs, you know, Steve Jobs, the, the co-founder. So he wore his turtleneck, his black yeah. turtleneck, pretty every much day. every day to save time.
But he had an unfortunate ending, and he was eccentric. Yes. He probably could have saved his life. I don't. I'm not. At, I'm eccentric, but not in that way. I, you know, I believe in, in some forms of traditional medicine. But I, but I, um, I just think it saves time. I mean, if you find something you think you look pretty good in, and you can throw it in the washing machine at night and wear it in the morning, and then wrap a scarf around. I change my earrings. I sometimes change my shoes and your nails. I, my nails are very important. I love my the nails. nails are very important. What to color me. is that They're, right now? I don't know. It's, it's a TJ it Maxx cover. It looks gold. I know. Like but a, it's good, but it, right? It, yeah, I like because it because I bit my nails and they're long. I know, but and they're mine. You can try. Okay. Okay, you can actually try. See, they're yours. They're, they're not mine. Coming me. Off. No, they're real. Um, I, <laughs> I don't my know nails. what trying is when when you. I, well, I, mean, I literally just kind of poked her fingernail when <laughs> when she said you can try because I don't know what it means when you say you can try and it's your nail. Well, because people say are those real? Do people, people say, try they, to pull them off? People say are they real? <laughs> but I mean, the point is they are real and they are. I have very good hair and very good nails, even though I'm aged. And the thing is that I. I used to bite my nails until I was about 14, and I was very ashamed. And I used to suck my, suck my thumb. Suck your thumb? Suck my thumb way too long. So that at camp, I used to have to pull the blanket over so that when I was seven and eight, nobody oh would see. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that I was sucking my thumb. So fingers, and also my mother had no fingers because yes. she had Raynaud's disease. So having nice hands and having nice nails is probably psychologically Freudian, very deep. But I'm obsessive about my fingernails. It's the only thing that I – and I actually change the colors even though I may not change my clothes. I like knowing that my nails grow. I I think they grow after you die too though. They do. But I – you know that? You've been dead? No, but I've heard the research behind that too. That's scary. Yeah. Your hair grows too? Yeah. So you could get a bob and then, you know, your corpse would have long hair. Is that possible? I think so, yeah. They'd find your skeleton, you, can, you have long hair. Would yeah. it be braided or just be just whatever? I hope if it's braided, then there's something really something weird is, going somebody on. Somebody entered. Yeah, there's something scary. Somebody there. <laughs> no, I I um, I don't know. It's so odd because I shouldn't really like to have long nails. It doesn't fit with my per, my personality. And Why do you think that? What, what, what's because my mother had no versus, fingers. Versus, she was always hiding her hands. But the so personality thing, look. the long nails versus who you are. What do long nails symbolize versus who you think you are and who well, you are? Well, that I'm my own person, that I don't have my mother's disease, first of all, because mm-hmm. I have 10 fingers. And that I um, have a little of the cha-cha in me mm-hmm. left. Um that even though my ring is from my grandma who wore these in her ears when she came from Russia. And it's was, beautiful. You know, even though there's a reminder that I'm an immigrant, mm-hmm. like all of us, there's also a little bit of sachet here. Yeah, I like it. And it's a good look. that's about the only thing. The rest of it is definitely not sachet. It's pretty enough. I mean, you know, I'm not hideous. <laughs> so it's, you know. But I think you look sachet. great. Thank you. I think you look great. Thanks. Yes. I think you look great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Given your work um, documenting the lives of people, mm-hmm. and um, I heard an interview where you talked about the fact that you really enjoy documenting sort of the unknowns or, yes. or things that will become known that you feel like are on the verge of getting known, but mm-hmm. before they've sort of already been popularized and manicured and sort of maneuvered and manipulated into whatever they think that their right image is going to be at that time. Given that, do you feel that it is possible for people 
who may not be as in tune with an EQ in the way that you have this sort of great sense for human beings. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible to gain that skill set and gain that intuition? That's a great question. In other words, can you turn evil and distance into good and comfort, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I hope so. I hope, I mean, I, I guess, you know, sometimes you do a film about someone who nobody knows. And then people champion that person. Like we did a film about a woman who was living with three children on the minimum wage. Wanted to do a film about the minimum wage, but I don't like to do didactic kind of films. Right. So we just simply did her life. And um, some rich guy, you know, put her through college. Wow. I mean, that was kind of nice. And once we did some of the early films about HIV, and some guy in the Army wrote me a letter. This was before emails. I was born before emails. I don't before believe that. Before iPhones. No, you don't look oh, like you could yeah. have been oh, born before yes, emails. I was, no I, way. I was, I mean, they just learned to write. <laughs> I was there with Mel Brooks and the 2,000-year-old man. But the thing is that, that um, he wrote me a letter. It was really a letter letter, um, and it said, I used to hate gay guys. I really did. But when I saw the broadcast tapes of Dr. Peter, who was a doctor who was HIV positive, was going to die. It was before there was, a, you know, the great, the great cocktail, that, or the cocktail. Mm -hmm. I don't know how great it is, but it keeps you alive. Um, and he said, I was so wrong. After watching this doctor's demise from HIV and knowing that there was no cure and knowing how prejudiced I had been before, I want to thank you. Wow. And I thought that was, you know, those things make a big difference. But I do believe that the purpose of docus at their highest form is to really champion the the people that don't have it, that don't have the access, and that somehow by giving them the access, you've made them visible, valuable, and you've created empathy, which is probably the greatest human emotion next to love. You don't have to love the person, but if you can feel for the person— yes then maybe you wouldn't have Charlottesville. Maybe you wouldn't have mm -hmm. Nazi flags. Maybe you wouldn't have anti-everything. Right. You know. Um, when when you get to know people as people, like I know you sitting across the table from me, mm -hmm. you're not in some group, some, some group right. that I can put a label on. It's a very different. That's a good point. I mean, and I think maybe that's really, that actually explains something to me about myself, which is I like the one person story yeah. very much. Um I mean, when you look at the great docus, they focus on one person, whether it's Nanook or Dr. Peter or, you know, docus that I've had nothing to do with, The Life and Times of Harvey Milk. Mm -hmm. It's one person's struggle, and you say, hey, you know, I'm not so different from that person. He looks different. He acts different. His sexual preferences are different. But you know what? Well, to quote, you know, when you cut him, he bleeds. Right. And I feel something for him. I think that's the only way out of hate. I can't think of any other way. And that's basically what your question was about, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's about conversion from, you know, there's a song in South Pacific that says you've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. And the point is, how do you unteach that? I think the only way you can do it is story by story, person by person. And how much of that do you think is contingent on finding the right subject totally. versus telling the story the right way? I think I think that if I've made any contribution at all, I think it's oddly because of my theater background. Um, 
I think we cast our documentaries the way you would cast narrative. So that if I'm going to tell the story about the minimum wage, I'm not going to just pick a person. I'm going to pick a person, but not just any person is what I mean. I'm going to pick someone who I think has the charisma and the dramatic appeal to tell the story in a way that will evoke empathy and reactions from people who may be on the other side. Talking to yourself is of no use. To do something for the, about the 1% for the 1% or to do something about the 99% for the 1%, it, it, nothing's going to work. You've got to find a compelling subject that everybody identifies with or can identify with because, remember, television goes into your living room. So this person is an uninvited guest. So your first thing is, what are they doing there behind the glass? And then, hopefully, 15 or 20 minutes, if you haven't turned to somebody famous, you you begin to feel a camaraderie, an empathy with the person on the other side of the glass. And that's what I like the best. Yeah. And that's my hoped-for contribution. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You What's know. been the toughest lesson for you in your career? To keep my mouth shut. The faux pas queen? Yes. The master the of the faux pas? To not say what I think. It's been very, very hard. It's been very, very How difficult. often do you actually bite your tongue? You want to see my tongue? <laughs> <laughs> There's the scars to prove it. Well, do you think I, I mean, bite my tongue? Yeah, less than I used to. I was going to say, but that. I don't think a day goes by when I don't bite my tongue. I don't think it. That's why I don't chew gum. Why do you? Because at this point, why not just say exactly what you think all because the time? Because sometimes what I think is either not PC, is difficult to express, or it'll hurt somebody's feelings, even though it may be true. Mm. I bite my tongue when I have something true to say, but sometimes true isn't always kind. You have to be careful, you know. Do you um, put kindness ahead of truth? Ooh. Are you sure you're in economics? Uh, yes. I would protect someone, unless it was an evil person. But if it was a person who I thought I might hurt by saying what I hurt, uh, you know, I mean, I'll tell anyone they have lipsticks on, lipstick on their teeth. <laughs> uh, but I, I probably wouldn't tell someone who had just change sex, that they had lipstick on their teeth, or that I could still see their Adam's apple. <laughs> I probably would try to applaud that they had made it, you know, a switch that makes them happy and not hurt them in any way. That's such a stupid example, but I, I, I that's why my tongue is in bad shape. Um, I ask this question of every person who comes on the show. Really? What is the worst advice that you've received in the course of your career? <laughs> Lean forward. Lean forward before you have sure a sure a sure seat. I think I think be careful. Uh, not everybody, men or women, necessarily wants you to push them or push at them or express yourself. Don't feel the need to express yourself before the timing is right. And I think timing is a gift. Uh, it is a gift. Having I've that gut had, instinct. That may be that EQ you talked about. I think that the EQ and timing is probably the key to success, probably more than talent, because it puts you in the right place at the right time with the right language. So I think EQ and timing, probably the same word. And what's, yeah. the, what's the biggest mistake that you see people who come and pitch you making? Well, not knowing what you do. Saying, tell me what you do, which is, you know, oh, I, yeah. I'm going to strangle the person when they say that. <laughs> or um, connections bother me. 
You know, oh, nepotism. I'm the son of the daughter of the, you know, of the king of Siam. Mm-hmm. That bothers me. Probably because you. I mean, the story well, about the, the boyfriend Mary at one, the time, and the also Mary one and Mary yep. two. Yep. Where Mary, Mary two is working in the gift shop. Mary one is, you know, they ha- got the job. She got the job because her father was related to the cousin of the uncle of the dad, the cousin of the uncle of the cousin of the uncle. They were both equally qualified. And um, Mary One got the job. Mary Two was working in the gift shop. Mary One's playing golf. Mary Two is selling her a sun visor. Uh, I think that's the question. That was the yes. question. Yeah. I just thought I saw Mary One and Mary Two. See, I'm really strange. And I think I was Mary Two. <laughs> anyway. I think you're Sheila Nevins. Oh, okay. And I think you're awesome. Oh, and I appreciate I you joining awesome. me on this show. Thank, Thank you so you. much. I'm sorry I don't know much about economics. And you don't finance. need to know anything about economics okay. to be here. Okay, you don't good. look your age and other fairy tales. New York Times bestseller, the author Sheila Nevins here with us. Thank you so much. Proud of you and everything you. you've accomplished you are, in your you career. You are great. Thank you. You should have a TV show. Okay. Tell okay. my boss. <laughs> well, when you're ready, lean forward. Boom. (laughs) And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Ashley Dobkowski, who is nominated by No Limits listener Emmalyn Shaw. Ashley Dobkowski is the CEO and co-founder of Before Brands, which is a health and wellness company that's developing a line of consumer products to prevent food allergies from ever starting. The idea is to keep kids from developing allergies by introducing them into their lives early on. Anybody who is a mom, anyone who is around a lot of kids knows that allergies are rising and how big of an issue this is. Ashley received her BA in mathematics from Wellesley College and her PhD in mathematics from Rice University. She co-founded Before Brands in 2015 after having 20 years of experience in health and life sciences. Before Ashley co-founded Before Brands two years ago, she spent 20 years in the health and life sciences field. She worked, for example, at Bay City Capital, which is a $1.6 billion venture capital firm where she was a managing director. Before that, she was chief business officer and vice president of operations for 23andMe. Before Brands recently got $35 million in funding, which is going to let the company launch its first line of dietary supplements later this year. Huge congrats to you, Ashley, and the whole team at Before Brands. I've heard incredible things about you. After I got the pitch from Emmalyn, I got a text message from an old friend telling me, you absolutely have to feature Ashley. She's incredible. So huge shout out to you, what you're doing. Can't wait to see what you're going to create and uh, look forward to those dietary supplements later this year. And thank you to you, Emmalyn, for the great nomination. Remember, if you or someone you know should be here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you got to tell me, write to me, send it in an email to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really does help to spread the word. And you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. And join the conversation using the hashtag No Limits. And thanks so much to the team here at ABC who makes this happen week after week. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Annie Osakwe, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Hecht, 
Andrew Kelb and Steve Jones here at ABC Radio. Have a great week, everyone. Take care. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.